0: Today on The Art Dealer Show, we will hear returning guest
1: Richard Perry say... And buying a work of art is very much like getting married, but a a work of art, something that you proudly hang on the wall, that you look at every day of the week when you're home, that you tell every story that you know about it to everybody who walks, that's unique.
0: Welcome to The Art Dealer Show a podcast for and about the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and today on the show we have part two of my conversation with Richard, Dick to his friends, Perry, the owner of Centaur Galleries in Las Vegas, and also a principal player in the grand old days of Merrill Chase Galleries based out of Chicago, Illinois. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the first part of our conversation, well, I highly recommend you check it out. It was really the first chapter of Richard's life, and it's really about, well, some of the early days of a real benchmark operation that set the course for much of what became the gallery business as we know it today, at least for those of us who work it at the street level. But it's not a prerequisite, as always. This is a whole different chapter. In this one, we're going to get into some fantastic stories about the things that happened in chapter two in Dick's life. We're going to talk about a civil servant that he sold a $6,000 painting to that ended up decades later leaving his family with the incredible sum of, well, you're going to have to listen to the rest of that story to get what that incredible sum is. We're going to hear about Salvador Dali and his pet ass lot. We're going to get a slice of Andy Warhol's reality. And we're going to hear the story about how a 19-year-old's chance encounter with an incredibly well-known eccentric millionaire in Las Vegas led to, decades later, paving the path to opening up one of the first, if not the first, major retail gallery right there on the Las Vegas Strip. Do I have you hooked in? Well, if I don't, then we're very different people. In the meanwhile, I've got something on my mind it's been on my mind, actually, since the last time you and I spoke, and I'm hoping we can go and grab a short one over at the old art dealer bar, and and I can run it by you. Okay, are we all settled in? Are we comfortable? Did we get ourselves a nice cocktail from the bar? Good. Now... I've had this one on my mind for a couple weeks. It goes back to probably about the last time you and I hung out here and talked. And it's uh, something a friend told me. A tip, actually. A tip, not too coincidentally, about bars. Now, we don't need it for the old art dealer bar, but this is if you go into a new bar, one that you're unfamiliar with, and you don't really know the fine details about bars themselves. She said, if you want to know what you can trust and not trust, take a look behind the bar. And if you see plastic tops, those little pores on top of the bottles, don't get fancy. Don't order a cocktail. Stick with a beer. Probably better a beer in a bottle. Now, that is an excellent tip. It's not only a great tip for folks like me that enjoy the occasional social livation. It's a great tip for those of us in the art business. And I'm going to explain what I mean in just a second. But for the moment, let's just focus on the bar aspect of this. It's a great tip because I know that bars, like all businesses, have a lot of details to it. There's a lot to know. That if I was a real expert in this, I would be looking for all kinds of signs that would tell me whether or not the guy behind the bar is capable of making me that perfect sidecar. But I don't have that. I don't even care to know that. And you know what? The risks that are involved in me not knowing that, they're minor risks, but buy a drink that wasn't worth buying and I lose a few bucks, I can live with that. But, and this is getting back to the art dealer folks, but if I'm a collector, a prospective collector, and I'm in one of our galleries, and I'm looking at a hundred thousand dollar painting, then that's an entirely different matter, because the stakes are high. Now what do those two things have to do with each other? They have an incredible amount to do with each other, And that is this, people who go into our galleries, even if they've been in galleries before, even if they're wealthy and they're sophisticated and they've bought many of the finer things, for the most part, they do not know our business. And they, like me, going into a bar and not really knowing much about bars, even though I've been in many of them, they don't know what to look for to qualify whether or not this is a place that's smart to buy an expensive painting in. If you, the person selling it to them, are the appropriate person to be selling them something of that value. And because of that, they're going to depend on a very specific tool that we all carry around. They're going to depend on their frontal lobe. Now, I know I just went broad, so hang in there with me. It's going to be one of those kind of wild and out from left field things, but I promise I'll bring it around back home and it will be about the art business. Now, here's why I mentioned the frontal lobe part because the frontal lobe well that is a part of our brain that really sets us apart from all the other animals and the thing about it that makes it unique is it's the part of our brain that allows us to create patterns create them and perceive them it's the way that us these relatively slow moving not very strong bags of jelly have worked our way to the top of the food chain again hang in there with me this is about the art business its ability to To perceive and to create patterns has allowed us to be generalists. We, unlike other animals, can go into a new setting and we can process it very quickly. We look out at a field of green. We don't have to look at every blade of grass. We just look at green and we say grass. Understood it. It's simple. We look out on the horizon and we see a tree. It's a vertical thing. It's sticking up. It's got leaves. We say tree. We see a bunch of the same thing going off. We say it's a group of trees. We don't need to count and perceive every individual one. And that's really a powerful thing. And the reason it's a powerful thing is in that pattern, in that bit of homogeneous information, we notice eyes, 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 it's a tiger. Because we're looking for the break in the pattern. Understanding where the break in the pattern, where the unusual is, is the thing that has kept us alive all of these years. It's what makes us really unique and fast. Not fast in actual speed and not fast in strength, but we're fast. We can make assessments about our environment and we can make quick decisions that will keep us alive. Wow, okay, bringing it back home. This is what it has to do with an art gallery. The person who is walking into your gallery, who is not an expert in this industry, even though they don't know the field, They have made a generalization. They have made a generalization about the place that they're going into. They walked in, they saw paintings on the wall, and they said to themselves, without breaking down all the individual elements, they said, this is an art gallery. Now, I know that's not very telling by itself. But what they're starting to do is they're starting to establish patterns. They made a generalization and they applied a pattern to it. And that pattern of a series of paintings hanging up on a wall that told them it's an art gallery... That is working for you, and that is working against you. Because not only did they generate a pattern, they brought a pattern in with them. And it's the patterns that they have recorded from every model of every gallery that they've ever seen before. And unfortunately, most of those come from the movies. Movies, television shows, literature, ones that have been created in their imagination from books. And on that, let me give you an example of how powerful this is. If this is not your first time hanging out with me over here at the old art dealer bar, or hell, maybe it is your first time, I bet you, you have a picture in your head of what this bar looks like. I've never given a lot of details about the bar. I've certainly never described it, never told you what color the upholstery is, but just me saying that, you've applied a color. I know you have. Probably red. I've never told you where the bar is. I never told you if there's stools at it. Never told you how many. But again, just by mentioning that, you just did it. You described the stools in your brain. You decided how many there were. You decided how far in a row. You didn't have to describe every individual one of them either. You just applied the same pattern through the bar. It fit. You don't know where the door is, but you do know where the door is. We do that for everything. We pre-perceive, and then once we see the new information, we continue the pattern forward. So back to the gallery, and more importantly, back to that collector sitting in your viewing room, looking at that $100,000 painting and considering not if that painting is something that he likes. He knew that already. He knew it a long time ago. Not if he likes the artist or even the information that you told him about the artist. If he didn't, he would have gotten up. He would have left. He wouldn't be hanging on this. That's not what's happening. In many cases, he's trying to decide... If this fits if this all feels right and a big part of that is is the gallery right are you right is this right and so what is he doing now he's looking for those eyes in the bushes he's looking for a flaw he's looking for information that either is consistent with the pattern that was previously established of what an important gallery that sells expensive artwork is meant to look like or what breaks that pattern and tells him that he should be breaking off the deal and moving away from it He's looking for the plastic tops on the bottles, is what he's looking for. And when it's a $100,000 painting, and if that has a little bit of an ouch factor to it, in some cases, he'd much rather find the plastic bottle tops than find the metal ones that indicates this is a good place. It would make his life a lot easier. All right, so why am I bringing any of this up? I mean, it's obvious. There's a good lesson in here, at least if you were able to hang in there with me on it. But more importantly, because I've mentioned in the past... I get to a lot of galleries. I'm out there in the field pretty regularly, and I've got to tell you, I see more plastic bottle tops than metal ones out there. And they come in all different shapes and sizes and forms, and what's really sad is the galleries who have them, they're blind to them. They don't really see it. So I ask you, next time, tomorrow morning, whatever it is, when you return to your own business, take a look around. Look and see if you can find your plastic pores. Look and see if you can find the excuse for your next big customer to identify that you're a business that they don't need to bother with. I think you'll find something. I think we all have something. I know I have something. As a matter of fact, and, and this is true, in the thinking of this in the past week, I identified a couple of them in my own business that I brought up to my partner and we're already addressing. I'm kind of excited about that and a little bit embarrassed by the fact that those plastic pourers in my own business, they've gone on in some cases for the last fifteen or sixteen years. And in the spirit of maintaining pattern as an example of a quality business, or in my case, a quality show, I would like to keep up with my own pattern and go to a commercial. Do you know why TrueView, the makers of framing glazing of God knows how many years, advertises in Artworld News? Because that's where their customers are. Gallery owners, designers, framers, and the occasional panic parakeet. And why are their clients reading Artworld News? Because of the articles packed with social commentary and dry scholarly wit from writers like Tom Wolfe and John Updike. No, no, that's not actually that magazine, but they are packed with info about the world in which we live and work in, the art world, which is probably why they call it Art World News. Now, I wasn't there when the owners of A. Sanchez Gallery of Cancun, Mexico, made their choice to have a booth at Art Santa Fe in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I wasn't there at all, but I know why they made that choice. They decided to go there because that's where the collectors are. That's where the people in the business are. They knew that the aisles at this incredible art fair would be packed with people who specifically are interested in collecting artwork. This is the reason why folks go to the many fairs put on by Redwood Media Group. You can find out more information about all the fairs they put on at redwoodmg.com. You can learn about their upcoming fair in San Diego, as well as their upcoming fairs in Las Vegas, and even next year at Art Expo New York, the big one. Okay, I want to try something weird with you. I want you to picture the saddest thing you can. Close your eyes. It's a kid sitting alone at the end of a birthday table. It's his party. It's his happy birthday party. He's got a hat, slightly a little crooked. Little kid, about five years old. And there's no kids. None of them. No one showed up. It's horrible. Parents had to go out to the neighborhood and gather a couple people together to sing happy birthday to him. It was a postal worker and some other guy named Ed, kind of sure he was homeless, ate a lot of cake. Anyway, if you can picture that as being the saddest thing, then I would say the equivalent of the saddest thing in our business, the art business, is putting on an art opening and, like with Tommy, no one showing up. None of the right people. Couple folks you had drag in from the neighborhood to look like they're interested in what's hanging on the wall. That is the most pathetic thing you can imagine in the art business. That is why those of us who care, those of us who do not want to have a sad birthday party, call a professional to help us out to cure that ill. They call up the folks over at Relevant Communications. That's who they call. They call Allison Zucker Perlman and her team of art business publicist professionals. These are people who specifically work with art galleries, artists publishers, everybody in the art business. They know how to put the word out. They know how to pack a birthday party. I mean, pack an art show opening. They know how to keep it from being sad and make it into something fantastic. Go on over to relevantcommunications.net and find out what they can do for you. Our guest today is gallery owner, art dealer, Richard Dick to his friends, Perry. And if you hadn't had a chance to listen to part one of my conversation with Richard, again, I highly recommend you take a listen to it after you've had a chance to listen to this one. Now, since you might not have, I want to bring you up to speed. Richard is the owner of Centaur Galleries in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, this is not a minor deal. This is perhaps the first major gallery in Las Vegas, Nevada, that over the years has been one of the most major gallery markets in the United States. Before that, he was also a part of something that's, well, it's it's just an outright dynasty in our business. He was one of the principal players in Merrill Chase Galleries. And if you're not familiar with then, again, I suggest you take a listen to the part one of our conversation. And over the many years between working over at Merrill Chase and his own gallery over several decades on the Strip in Las Vegas, Richard has worked with some of the biggest names that the art business has ever seen. And I mean big names. Salvador Dali, Andy Warhol. As a matter of fact, in the conversation, as we begin in just a second, I am starting to brought him along and asked him about some of those stories that he had from hanging out with Andy Warhol and working with them, And that's exactly where I'm going to take you to right now. Nutsville. <laughs> so how did you wind up working with Andy?
1: Well, we represented him for a while. We, uh, we did his first major American show in Chicago. When I say American show, I mean outside of New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he did some shows in New York and uh, they, they were very different than what we do. We got, At the time, we had nine locations, 200 salespeople. And I'll tell you a cute story. You know, this just happened about a, a, a year ago. I had a, a gentleman and his family come in to see this Andy Warhol show that we were doing. Uh, we had it spread between a, a few galleries, uh, but the major show was being conducted out at, at our Oakbrook Gallery. And Andy was—he's kind of running around the place, and and uh, not everybody knew who he was. So we let him just score, yeah, just do whatever you want to do. And if we want somebody to to meet you and ask you about a painting or a picture, we'll we'll do it. And he kind of he'd kind of get lost in a crowd. And when I didn't you know say what score, what do you mean? Score Score for us was we had somebody who really wanted to buy a painting. And was willing to pay six thousand dollars for a major painting because that—that's what we were selling them for at the time. Yeah, that'd be big money. But we wanted to meet the the buyer and and shake hands and say hello and say a few things about the picture. Uh huh. You're gonna love this story. So uh, early in the afternoon, late afternoon, four or five o'clock, big tall gentleman walks in. He's got some family friends with him, and he's hypnotized. You could see his eyes facing a wall that's about 90 feet away from where he is. It's the entire length of the gallery. And he's looking at an electric chair. He's looking at a pink electric chair. And he's he's overcome with this. You could see that he's breathing heavy. He's walking quickly to go get closer and closer and closer to it. And he's standing in front of it. And that electric chair was six thousand dollars. This painting, unique painting, was yeah. You know. And I finally I walked up to him and I said, I said, how do you like the painting? He said, he said, he says I I would imagine that very few people would like something like this, but I'm in love with it. He said, I would love to have this, but this is so far beyond my financial ability that I just I couldn't buy it. I said, what do you do for a living? He said, well. He said, respectfully, he said, he said, please don't pass it along. He said, I I run a prison in uh, the middle of Illinois. This is a very small town. It's a very large prison. And this painting of this electric chair sitting in my office behind my desk would make a wonderful statement to the new inmates coming in. Oh, geez. (laughs) This is a true story. This is a real story. And he said, "You know, if I could find a way to buy that, he said I-, I would do it in a minute. He says it would be mine, you know, my property, not owned by the state. Money would have to come out of my pocket." And I said, "I got to." I'm
0: happy to hear that a state wasn't buying an Andy Warhol electric exactly, therapy exactly. Exactly. No, yeah, this is money out of his pocket.
1: <laughs> yeah. This is something for his office. He says, "If I could give you, could come up with a couple of thousand bucks, and then and make some payments, you know, for the next twelve months or something," he said. He said, Would you let me buy that? I said, Maybe. I said, first of all, I gotta get permission from Andy Warhol. So I went He's up to Andy. I could barely find still, him. Yeah. I could barely find him. He was all over the place. I found him sitting in the closet, sitting on the floor. I said, Andy, are you okay? He says, I'm just getting my I'm catching my breath. There's so many people out there. I don't know what to do with all those people out there. They're all asking me questions. So I said, Well, then stay in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go and, and we made a deal. I got $1,500. Well, hold on,
0: hold on. It's you are telling Andy, though, the story that someone who runs a prison wants the electric sheriff to go behind his desk. Yeah. So what's his take on that?
1: He, he, no take. Absolutely he no take. He doesn't care either he way. He could care less.
0: He doesn't think this is like the coolest
1: thing no, or not, this is horrifying. No, no, or... no, no, no he Wow. Nothing. No, no response. is literally. I got no response. Just the day at work. It's, it's, it's a day at work. Uh-huh. So he spent six months sending me to 1500 $1, I get it paid off, I ship it down there. And, you know, 30 years goes by. And two years ago, uh, one of the girls in the family called me, she said, Oh, you know, my, uh, uh, my great grandfather passed away. And he left us this painting, this electric chair thing, we don't know what to do with it. And my, my heart's beating. I know what this thing is worth. This We're talking about 10, 15, 20, $25 million. They don't know that. And I said, well, you're going to be in for a gigantic surprise because it's worth a lot of money today. And they said, how much? And I said, millions. And there was so much silence on the phone, it was unbelievable. I don't know, we'll get to Sotheby's, we'll get to Christie's, we'll get some people to, anyway, the bottom line is, the painting sold for twenty-two million dollars. Jeez,
0: that was the hammer down. Hammer down. 22. Tell me this: when it went up on the auction block, right? Did the auctioneer at all mention where that painting had been living? No,
1: not at all. How could they not? They they preferred to keep the original owner's name. Absolutely out of the picture.
0: And by describing where it had sat, exactly. that would just, they give just away too want,
1: they did too much. They thought it was overkill, too much. I called the family because they called me. So yeah, yeah. I, I was involved a little bit by calling them. And uh, they said, Well, Richard, we made a world record for a Warhol painting. I said, You got to be kidding me. I, I said, You're telling me that the, the electric chair went for a high price? And there was silence for just a couple of minutes. $22 million before they pay the commission. 22 million dollars so this guy's one action his his payments of a couple
0: thousand dollars at a time when he couldn't afford it after his death not only changed his family's disposition in the world but probably changed it for generations
1: you never heard so much screaming in your life on a telephone when i tell them the price
0: right. this screaming. isn't like everybody gets to go out and buy a car and a house this is their kids their grandkids their
1: children will be impacted by each. this. Just yeah. says uh, seven or eight of them. It's the divide seven divide seven into twenty-two yeah. million. What do you come up with? Still, it just it changes their whole place in the Three universe. million apiece. In a little town in in southern right. Illinois where a rich person has a has a two-story house of uh, fifteen hundred square feet.
0: So how many times already have you told that story in a viewing room?
1: Three times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm not that closely in touch with and beside that, I don't have any any uh, andy warhol's uh, out here for sale paintings or unique pieces but you can almost apply it to any presentation on a piece of artwork that's going
0: to involve payments
1: i've seen the same thing happen with picasso chagall Miro, dolly a little less than yeah. dolly because dolly was uh you know for a period of time there were a lot of fakes out there uh, i was very instrumental in, in wiping that out with a couple of other guys uh in our business, uh, I, I, I'm not allowed to use their name, but but we had the FBI go in and raid the galleries in California that were selling this crap stuff, that were selling fakes. Uh, we got people put in jail. Uh, we got, unfortunately, the, the one guy that I tried to save as much as I could was the son of the founder of uh, Forrest Lawn, who was a billionaire at the time. And he said, can you help me with my son? And I said, yeah, I can help you. I'll do whatever I can with the FBI to t- let them know that this was an accident, that he was purged and brought into this whole scheme of selling fakes that he didn't know anything about because he was supplying the money that you were giving him to be in the art business. Mm-hmm. And that's what was happening. Yeah, But We cleaned out five galleries with fakes. We, we got most of it out there and destroyed it. Literally, we burned it. We burned it
0: you want to talk about Dolly at all?
1: Uh, we were pretty close. I loved the guy. I, he was brilliant in every imaginable way. Uh, I, I'll tell you the cutest story, the, the, the most fun story that we had. Uh, we commissioned Dolly to do a couple of uh, portfolios uh, uh, while we were still Merrill Chase Galleries in Chicago. And I think one of the portfolios that we did was a portfolio of four pieces called the Chicago Suite. And uh, he made a promise to us that he would come to the opening of this show. So we sent an invitation out, you know, to 4,000 people. And there must have been 5,000 people that showed up to see Dolly because he said he was going to be there. And a uh, big limo pulled up, you know, the evening of the show at 6 o'clock. And uh, the first thing that jumped out of the car was a huge giant What is ocelot. A, ocelot you know, who wanted to kill anything could get his hands on. And, and there was this, a second ocelot. Now, there's two of them. Probably thrilled about being in a car. <laughs> yeah, limo, huge yeah, limo. Yeah, still. And then uh, uh, one of Dolly's uh, major supporters and uh, publishers and uh, close friend uh, was there to represent Dolly. And Dolly wasn't there because he was horribly afraid of uh, uh, the massacre. He must have said that three or four times on, on the phone with me. Massacre. No, come, no, no, massacre. And I, I for for days, I could not understand what the hell he was ask, talking about. What he was talking about was the massacre, the uh, 1920s massacre. Massacre, this big massacre was in all the newspapers and all the news. This is 50 years later. He was afraid to come to Chicago because of the massacre. He kept saying, There's a massacre. I won't come. He was horribly afraid someone was going to shoot him or kill him. You know, he never, Dolly never flew in an airplane in his life, ever. He would
0: come out here by ship?
1: By ship. And no he kidding. would come in January, the worst time of the year to, to get on a, on a boat. Because he's coming back seas. and forth in the 80s, and he's still doing it by ship? Never, never got on a plane in his lifetime. He was horribly afraid of, of airplanes. Wow. He represented four or five airlines. He would go, go five, six steps up the ladder in front of the plane on, on, on going in, and he would never get on on the plane. So it was a unique experience when these two ocelots jumped out of the car and we had to bring them into the gallery down to the lower level and we had to lock them up in Bob Chase's uh, office, which was about this size, in fact. And uh, the cats tore the whole thing apart. They, the, <laughs> the sofa was mangled, the desk was scratched, the lamps were on the floor. They they, they tore the whole place apart. Bob Chase was ready to kill me. <laughs> so, his office, so his office was... Just torn apart by the oscillates. You know, we still represent Dolly. There really isn't anybody anymore who is uh, close to the estate, uh, the family. Uh, there's no family really left. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we still find things in the hands of some of the older dealers who are still out there. and Some of the guys uh, who bought things, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago that they're still holding on to for better prices or for whatever other reason. But the market uh, is very strong for Dolly. Uh, it, it, it is difficult to find, But really. that took a long time. It's been a long time, and, and and that market is still pretty hot.
0: No, I mean, it took a long time for it to fully come back. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. As, as incre- you know, he's happened That's to be happened one of my... That's happened with
1: a lot of artists. Look at Andy Warhol. No. The comeback of Warhol is unbelievable.
0: Yeah, but Andy Warhol didn't have books and, and a 60-minute special about the scandals <laughs> around his publishing program. You know, that, I mean... I ha- Andy Dolly has a weird place in my own experience because by the time I came into the business, I literally would have this experience happen numerous times in a viewing room where someone like, you know, we love that painting. But, you know, we, um, we bought these dollies in the late 70s. And uh, I don't think I can buy another piece of artwork ever again.
1: That's why we have catalogs. We have every catalog and every major artist we represent that show us the fakes that show us the real stuff we get you buy everything that is purchased here is exchangeable for five years at the full purchase price no matter for what reason we don't care why they want to bring it back
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's exchangeable you get the full purchase price five years so you got five years to run around with it and have everybody look at it and tell you that it's real and it's real and it's real and it's real and it's real, and it's real. we very get we very seldom get anything back usually when somebody brings something back to us, they're upgrading to something significantly more important and they're using that as a deposit. Mm-hmm. Now we get almost nothing back. Yeah. It's remarkable that uh, we find people still out there looking and searching for things that they passed up by accident or for some other reason, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago.
0: That is an incredible thing. Yeah, most- I've seen it my entire career. Yeah. It, it, you, you it's can't chasing
1: the thing that, that got ever happened to anybody with a suit or a pair no. of shoes or a tie or a shirt or, no. or even a house for that matter. Yeah. This is one of the greatest rarities of any product that's ever faced mankind. It's art. And, and I think that the reason that, that it has this high level of, uh, of, of attention is that everybody has a little space in their heart for something that you could call a work of art. Everybody, mm-hmm. no matter how dumb, how beautiful, how wonderful, how smart you are, doesn't matter. When people look at things that were created by another living human being, there's an attachment in, in a lot of cases. And that's when the uh, excitement about buying something gets really heavy. They start sooner or later, they start collecting a little bit of art. Yeah, that's where people like us come in. And we're smart enough to be able to give people intelligent advice. There's a lot of people in our business, they don't know what the hell they're doing. They couldn't tell you half of what we know about one single work of art, (laughs) much less hundreds and hundreds of pieces, that I think our inventory is about 3,000 works of art. 3,000 works of art.
0: What do you think is the most common thing that people in this business don't understand?
1: I don't think they understand the psychology of the buyer. And what's even worse than that is, I don't think they understand their own psychology as being a seller. Mm-hmm. They, they, there's not I a marriage. I agree with that entirely. There's not a marriage here, and if there's not a marriage here, nothing's going to happen. You know, just think of human beings getting married. There's a there's a common ground. There's an affection. There's an attention. There's a common ground. They have spirits that cling together, that work together, that they want to get married. And buying a work of art is very much like getting married. It is. It sounds idiotically stupid because we don't think of it in the same way as you would get a shirt or a tie or a new suit or there. But a, a work of art, something that you proudly hang on the wall, that you look at every day of the week when you're home, that you tell every story that you know about it to everybody who walks through the doors and you're proud as hell of having it, that's unique. That's the most unique example of human behavior on the face of the earth. It's been going on for 500 years. Different artists along the way, but it's been going on for 500 years.
0: So can this kind of thing be taught? So, you just have to start teaching people how to think in those terms?
1: We, we, that's what we do. That's what, a, that's what a good art dealer does. But can anybody be taught? Well, the, art problem. De- the problem with most of the art dealers is they're not really real art dealers. They're purveyors. Mm-hmm. They're no different than the guy that's selling uh, soup or uh, uh, any other product. They're just—they're just not. They're, you can't. You it's mercantile. Can't, they're right. They're merchandisers. That's all they are. Mm-hmm. And there's a great deal of difference between being a real art gallery dealer and a merchandiser. We, we're not just simply merchandisers. We, we're we're purveyors of uh, of extraordinary stories uh, behind extraordinary events produced by extraordinary people so, and unless you think like that as an art dealer you're not an art dealer you're just a, you're just a salesman that's all you are i, I mean, agree with
0: you entirely you know the part that i liked about what you were saying before about you're, you're discussing the, the elements of understanding who you are understanding who they are understanding right. what the psychology people are and the variables of that right i think it's not just understanding that i think it's having an instinct to continue to ask that question over and over oh. again you, you don't just answer that question once and then go on your merry way in this business. Right. I don't think there's been a, a week that has gone by in my history in the business that I haven't asked those same questions about myself. Where am I in this?
1: We do you it know. all the time. We do it every day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and even midpoint in talking to a customer. Who am I right now? Who am I to these people? You know, and I don't know if you can actually teach people that. I think you can teach them how to, you can encourage it and you can uh, uh, sharpen that skill, but I think there's an
1: instinct to care about that stuff that's, I, that's inherent in a personality and not in others. I, I, I can tell you how we measure it. Yeah, When we see people coming back time and time and again to acquire more things from us, we know we were successful at the beginning of the relationship. Because mm-hmm. if you weren't successful at the beginning of the relationship, if they don't have a common understanding of what they are doing and and what they are looking at and what they are buying, and how much pleasure it will give you to own a piece of history and, and art which is a visual thing instead of a, of a book or a sheet out of a book or any number of other things doesn't give you the same pleasure because you can't just have it on a wall you can't look at it every day you don't get the same feedback and, and, it, and it's, it strikes a, a certain level of behavior to people who understand the art you know they're they're excited about it they just they don't lose the excitement Once they lose the excitement, it's time to get something else or look for a different artist. We're going to get
0: back to Richard in just a second, but I want to point out something. You have listened to the middle of this episode, which means thank you for considering it. And now back to me and Richard. Right now, I'm kind of bothering you or two, you're actually enjoying it and you're getting a lot from it. And if that's you, if you're the latter one, well, hell, if you're the one asleep too, I like to ask a favor from you. I'm going to jangle my little tip jar for just a second. It's not for actual money, but it is for a little help. You can help support this podcast by doing one or all of three really simple things. One, you can subscribe to the show over at iTunes. Two, you can review us over at iTunes. Both of them take no time at all. And the other one is, which would be better than any of them, tell someone. Tell someone in our industry about what you've been listening to and what you like about it. What do you think is the biggest lesson you've learned in this business? And you've been in it for how many years now?
1: Almost 50 years.
0: Almost 50 years. Okay. The one lesson that changed it all for you, or the one that you keep on learning over and over again, or the one that everybody else has to learn and maybe doesn't?
1: That's a very tough question to answer because there's a, there's a, there, there's a lot of little things that go on Mm-hmm. You know, between uh, a staff member and a, and and a, and a prospect, or a staff member and a regular art collector, and staff to staff, and and you know, my way uh, uh, of uh, you know presenting the product that we sell is probably very different than the way uh, art dealers sell their products. Uh, we spend probably more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a prospect who's looking at uh, a work of art or is looking at a group of works of art uh, dealing with the aesthetics. And, and, and if we find that the, the aesthetic approach uh, is not striking home, they're looking at the wrong work of art. And we made a mistake by promoting that work of art to that person. We got to move them on to something that they're really heart-filled with uh, a, a gracious uh, approach, in falling in love with the artwork, you got to fall in love with it. this is a love affair. This is not just a purchase. This is not a handbag. It's not a wallet. It's not a home. It's not a car. This is a this is a this is a romantic uh, relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. Not only do I think you're right, I, I think it's also the answer to have any joy in this business for yourself. I think if you can't see it that way, the job's boring.
1: For us, you run around and look at my staff. Would you believe that he's almost forty-eight years old? No. Would you believe I'm going on seventy-six?
0: Yeah, you look. No I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> you go out and you look at you go out and you look at my staff. They're all considerably older than they than they look. The reason for that is that these people uh, sleep well. Yeah. Are conscious free have no real uh, inhibitions about what they're doing love the product, love selling the product, know how to approach people, understand the romantic relationship between prospective buyers and the artwork and how the artwork talks to the prospective buyer, how the prospective buyer talks to the artwork. We deal with emotions more often than any art gallery dealer in the world because all they're dealing with is a canvas with some paint on it, and a price. They're not dealing with anything else. They don't deal with the emotional relationship between the buyer and the product. They they don't do it. The result is that very few people walk away. Some of them buy the stuff anyway. They're not happy with it three months later, six months later, or a year later. We all lose them. They don't go back and buy any more art.
0: Mm-hmm. They were you, buying. You're not just ruining them as your customer. You're actually ruining them for the entire industry. For the entire industry. industry. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, one bad experience. That's it. it that's had, it. They're it done. they had their moment.
1: Right. That's Exactly. Done. That's done.
0: Okay, I'm going to shift the gear on you just a little bit because I'd be remiss to not ask you about this, which is not a short period of time, this period in your career where you break off from Merrill Chase, uh, which
1: I don't know what the terms of that were. Well, we broke out years ago. I mean, Bob Chase is still a a stockholder in our company, uh, but I hear from him about once a year. Yeah. He calls to say, hello, how are we doing? (laughs) How are we doing? That's it, you know. Uh, Everything's fine, Bobby. You have a nice day. I'll talk to you later.
0: So what brings you to Vegas? How did that happen?
1: Three things things happened. Uh, Number one, um, I was personally... uh, Uh, close with the Howard Hughes and and his organization. Uh, Number two, uh, Howard Hughes uh, was the man who literally bought this 87 acre piece of land uh, that became the fashion show mall later. Uh, Number three, I had an invitation uh, to be in the art gallery business in Las Vegas through the Howard Hughes organization. I signed up for a space there five years before it was completely built. Uh, literally, uh, we were the first major art gallery dealer uh, anywhere in the country to think about coming to Las Vegas. We really felt that we had an opportunity to be able to teach people a lot of things about art that they didn't know. Uh, We felt very strongly that uh, we would see a lot of growth in the city of Las Vegas, period. It was a pleasant experience for many people who came here. Uh, what they may have been missing was some decent shopping. And what they were certainly missing is there was no art at all in Las Vegas. Zero. There were a few minor artists living here who did little Western paintings, uh, little things like that, uh, that every once in a while, some cowboy might buy a little Western painting. And that was just about the end of it. Uh, but there really was not almost any art in Las Vegas. And we had some people living here who had enough money to buy anything that they want major 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 multi-millionaires
0: and that's interesting because most people now who open up galleries in las vegas are thinking about the tourists yeah but you came here for they... actual las, A- las vegas absolutely. residents absolutely yeah
1: some of the richest people in the world were living here <laughs> you know they owned all the gold mines <laughs> <Yeah>. 40 miles <laughs> away from us Period. Zip Zero. They owned a lot of things. I so.
0: would imagine being that you
1: had a relationship with Howard Hughes. We and did. I And you I haven't did.
0: told me how you got that relationship.
1: Uh, the first time I came here, I was 19 years old. Yeah. Uh, I was just old enough to get into a casino, but not old enough to go to a bar. Uh, not old enough to go to the casino tables. Not old enough to do this or that. And uh, I came here literally uh, to uh, make an appearance in what was called a, uh, a jackpot poker game at one of the casinos. And uh, the minimum age limit was 18, that you could go in and, and play in this game uh, without having to be 21 because there was no money involved. And on the second night that we were here, we, we had a uh, rented car that was parked downstairs in the basement of uh, the, the hotel We made the decision that we would go down and get in the car and just ride up and down the strip, which was only a couple of blocks long anyway. We thought we would do that. And when we went downstairs, uh, there was an older guy there uh, trying to get his car door open. And it was right across the parking space that we were parked in. And he was having some difficulty getting the car door open. I screamed over, "Hey, you need a little help getting the door open." He's God goddamn thing won't work. He's kicking it. He's smashing it. Couldn't get the key to open the door. Guess who it was? It was Howard Hughes. And he said, "Boy," he said, "You're a genius. I can't thank you enough." We went on and on and on and on. He says, "I'm throwing a big party out at my house out there in the uh, uh, in the uh, in the hills." He said, "You want to come?" And the three of us got in the car with Howard Hughes. And we drove out to this white mansion that he bought out there in the middle of the desert. Walked in a the door, there's movie stars everywhere. There's alcohol and champagne and liquor everywhere. There's some, some of the most beautiful women I ever saw in my life everywhere. And that's how I started a minor relationship with Howard Hughes, period.
0: We I, I, stayed for hours. I would have bet any amount of money out of my pocket right now that it had to be art business related. Instead, it happened years and years before you ever got into the gig. I was like
1: 19 years old, yeah. I am on 20. So, but part two of that is this, is... this is 1959. I don't even know who the hell he is. I don't know who he is until we get out there. I swear to God, they had no idea. Well, he's not a movie star. He's, well, he wasn't a mean, movie you've star. you heard his name, but, you know. You know, when he moved here, he took he took a couple of suites next to each other on the top floor of the Desident Hotel. Uh-huh. So he's he's sitting in the bathroom one day. And the bathroom window faces this the strip, what we call the strip. He keeps looking at this 88 acres piece of land, 88-acre piece of land, 88-acre piece of land. And finally, he decides it's bothering him to look at it. So he bought it in hope of turning it into something. And eventually, after a thousand different ideas were passed by him. Bothering him because it's being wasted? It's being wasted. Uh-huh. He said, we're going to build a major, major retail shopping mall there. This was unheard of in Las Vegas at the time. Uh, unheard of. The streets weren't paved two blocks in any direction. There were dirt roads. The strip was a dirt road.
0: What's different about selling art in Las Vegas than anywhere else?
1: Well, you know, the big difference here is that, that unfortunately, you know, for us, there are numerous uh, uh unbelievably uh, numerous uh, attractions uh, that they become attracted by once they walk out these doors. And that's what makes this city very different than any other city. I mean, you, it, if you're in, in New York, if you're in Chicago, if you're, you, you walk out the doors of a major art gallery, you're not going to see uh, dozens of attractions that might... Uh, uh, persuade you to walk in those doors and forget about the doors you just walked out of so the the real difficulty here is in getting uh, the attraction and the attention of a prospective buyer to remain for as long as they're here which averages about four days and if we can't get a deal done you know in three or four days uh, we're guys gone anyway so you know what we really Final. Or
0: even that one first visit to the
1: gallery exactly, itself. Exactly. Exactly. You know. You know. Part of part of what we do in this this five year exchange privilege that we have is what really saves them, and they know that. They recognize that. You got five years to decide whether or not you want to keep it or trade it in. There is no other gallery that does that. So you 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 don't take any risk here. It's in writing. It's on the back of every sales ticket. It's well described.
0: You think you would have come up with that if you were based in any other city? Or is that particularly
1: invented? Well, we invented that in Chicago.
0: Yeah, okay. So it goes back to there.
1: It goes all the way back to Chicago. We invented it in Chicago to to outstrip everybody else what they were doing in in, in the art gallery business. But there's got to be something that you understand about Vegas
0: that a lot of people don't. I mean, there's been a lot of galleries that have come and gone out of this town. And... You're the longest player, I'd imagine, at this point, right? Well, we get
1: the we've we got we've got the best programs for everybody. I mean, everything that we do is done with perfection. We just don't skimp on anything. We don't believe on skimping on anything. Mm-hmm. You get a package from us, you better get out your hammer and and, and your and your your screwdriver and yeah, yeah, yeah to get that crate open because that Not I right. think what's made you know what has made us successful is that that we go overboard to make sure that the prospect. Who becomes the customer? Who becomes the collector? Is well taken care of in every imaginable way, and and unless you do that, uh, unless these people are like family to us, these are you know, backpacking, hugging, you know, some of the women kissing you know, on the cheek. You know, hey, Richard, thank you so much. You don't see that kind of stuff going on in 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 other art galleries. You don't see it going on in any kind of business, for that matter. There's a relationship here. How do you foster that though? When that's really what we want. So that's that's what we get. That's what we teach, that's what we train. That's what every catalog of material information that we give new new staff people to study and and learn and this is the way we do business.
0: So I'm wrapping up here. Now that you're starting, you know, getting into retirement, is there anything in this entire career that you would have done differently? No. Not a thing.
1: Not a thing. Not not a single thing. Anything you wanted you never got? No. No, I'd be awfully uh, incompetent if I didn't think I got everything I wanted. I got more than I ever wanted. Nothing you regretted? No regrets. Not ever. I'm going to tell you something. Great secret for me. You want to stay young? You want to live long? You want to have a lot of fun along the way? You better learn how to make everybody happy no matter who you're talking to whether it's your 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 daughter your mother your grandmother your girlfriend your uh, your son it doesn't matter who it is make everybody happy you've got to learn to make everybody happy if you can't do that you can't be in this business but you got to make people happy here because they don't really understand the nature of art they just don't
0: who's they in this
1: the people who walk in and and uh have always thought about you know owning a painting or two. They just don't understand the nature of what that uh, value is based on. The, it's it's not just the aesthetic value; it's the financial value. You know, you know we have to teach them everything that we can so they feel comfortable when they walk out the door. There's nothing really easy about this. We make it look easy. We make it sound easy. Uh, but you know, most people, regardless of how wealthy they are are always afraid they're being screwed. I don't care what kind of product they're looking at. They go to the automobile dealer. It doesn't matter who it is. They're always being screwed. So their temptation is to hold back on everything until you can find a way to show them that there's no chance that they, that, that can happen here. Everything is exchangeable for five years. Everything has a price tag clearly visible on it, unless we had to take them off for a different reason. Everything that comes out of this gallery comes comes with a certificate of authenticity. We do packing. We do crating. We do shipping. We do all of the things that make your life easy. That's it. No secrets. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. I got to stop now because my throats get dry. You as gave me bone. twice
0: as much as you promised. More than that. <laughs> Was that not worth it? I mean, just for the Howard Hughes story by itself, this is one of my favorite episodes. I love old stories of this kind. I want to thank Richard Perry once again for the time that he gave me and for all of his personal stories that he shared with us. And I appreciate all the folks over at his gallery that helped out and made this possible. He has a personal assistant that made a big difference in getting this all put together for us. So thank you to them as well. I also want to thank you and I want to thank all the folks who continue to review our show and write nice things over at iTunes and give us the nice reviews and the ones that have sent me some wonderful notes over on Facebook and on Twitter and the emails that have come in. I appreciate every bit of it. It helps keep me rolling and helps put a little bit of steam into this and allows me at the end of a long day of art dealing to get in front of the mic and babble on a little bit longer so I can have this show. So until we meet again... May the coconuts fall at your feet. Good night, my art dealers. Good night. This has been The Art Dealer Show. You can find out more about us at our website, artdealer.show. You can also find us at all the cool social media locations under that one handle. Yeah, you guessed it, Art Dealer Show.